but also we're doing the young a disservice when we train them for leadership and don't talk about it. That leadership is inherently isolating. Too many leaders live a life that they can never stop. That's a formula for failure. Trust God, take time off, rest, recuperate, and you'll be a better person for it, and those around you will benefit as well. How was the Word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Thanks for joining us on Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, and it's hard to believe, but we are in episode 12 of the leadership process. Today, Michael will be teaching from Nehemiah chapter 13, and then later he'll be having a conversation with author speaker Stephen Mansfield about the exquisite loneliness of leadership and also the importance of rest and how we can practically rest in a way that actually re-energizes us. Two things before we jump into Nehemiah 13. One, if you live in Nashville, Michael has started a Tuesday night Bible study in the Cool Springs area. We would love for you to join us and you can get all of the details on our website, michaelincontext.com. And secondly, if you have listened to Michael at all, you have heard him declare that it is God's will for your life to go to Israel. And Michael is taking another tour in the spring of 2019, and you can reserve your spot now. So if you head to michaelincontext.com, you will find an Israel option on the menu, or you can just type in the direct link, michaelincontext.com forward slash Israel. Now let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 13. What kind of sins have we minimized and somehow relegated to they're really not that big of a deal? One of the unique challenges of being a Christian in a cultural context is how we view sin. Do we hoodwink sin? Do we minimize it? Or do we just flat out dismiss areas of sin that somehow they were sin maybe in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but they're not sin today? For example, sexual sins, any form of sexual activity outside the boundaries of a heterosexual monogamous marriage is sin. That sounds so intolerant, so bigoted, so hateful, so unkind, so discompassionate, on and on and on. But yet, that's what Scripture teaches. Gossip. It's so easy around the kitchen or the coffee machine at work to slip into talking about people behind their backs. I remember many years ago someone saying, why do people whisper? You whisper in a conversation because you don't want others to hear you. What are you saying that you don't want them to hear? Or perhaps the emphasis on self, what I call horizontal Christianity. The Christian life has become all about me and my and my passions, my dreams, my hopes, my marriage, my family, my children, my, 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 as opposed to glorifying God. 
may sound like I'm being a bit hard-nosed, but if sin is sin, what happens? Where do we slide away from identifying those things as sin, calling them sin, and responding to them appropriately by confession? In Nehemiah chapter 13, we have what many would call an intolerant and hateful record of Nehemiah's confrontation of Israel that had slid back into sin. As we look at this chapter today on this broadcast, I want you to ask and answer in your own mind, where have you slidden away from the word and into areas that aren't questionable? They're sin. There are no less than five areas that Nehemiah is going to point out. The first one being sins regarding worship. The second one, sin regarding evil on the inside or evil inside the camp. Third, sin regarding the failure to support the priest and the temple complex. Fourth, sins about the Sabbath. And finally, sins regarding marriage. Let's take these five and look at them a little bit one at a time. Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 1 on that day. They read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water. But they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, Our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So number one, the sins regarding worship. Chapter 13, verse 1 gives us a time stamp. The dating of the book suggests Nehemiah was governor for 12 years, from 444 to 332 B.C. Now, the portion of the book of Moses that he refers to is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 5. Let me read that for you. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or prosperity all of your days. So, What we're getting here in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the law was clear. The law exposed Ammonites and Moabites were prohibited from the assembly. Deuteronomy 23 further accounts this Ammonite and Moabite refusal to join Israel in their entry into Canaan. Further, they hire Balaam to curse them. Because of this, they've got no part in the temple complex worship. They're reminded of this. Now, just As a side note, Tobiah was influential in the area of the Ammonites. The Ammonites worshipped Molech, one of their gods, by sacrificing children in fire. According to Edwin Yamauchi, extensive archaeological evidence shows they burned thousands of children. The Moabites worshipped Chemosh, another god to whom they sacrificed children. 
So these two groups of people were prohibited from any interaction, much less worship in the temple complex. So the first sin was regarding this integration of bringing what we might say non-believers, those who were injurious to Israel in such a way that God prohibited their involvement from the community. The second sin of worship comes regarding what we might call evil on the inside. Listen to verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, prescribed for the Levites, for the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during this time, I, Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the thirty-second years of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from him, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Sounds like a parent tossing out his teen's dirty room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the room, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Nehemiah learns that Eliashib, who was the high priest, had welcomed Tobiah into a temple storeroom. This room was supposed to be used for all of the, let's just say, material support of the sacrificial system. And what they turned it into was a condo for an enemy. We might have cringed from a former time the way the Lincoln bedroom was used in the White House. Well, the fine print here in Nehemiah, Eliashib and Tobiah are closely related by family ties. Tobiah had been Nehemiah's enemy. He'd fought him resisting the wall. He'd mocked him. He'd been an irritation from the beginning. Nehemiah's gone, and Eliashib allows Tobiah to move into the temple storehouse. This is letting an enemy come inside the most sacred part of Israel's worship system. Tobiah had opposed God's work from the outside. How in the world would they let him live on the inside? And Nehemiah, verse 7 of chapter 13, calls this evil. Energized by anger, Nehemiah tosses the room. It's one of those scenes in the Old Testament. You wish you could be a fly on the wall and watch Nehemiah toss the room. (laughs) He purifies it. He restores it. He puts back the articles for the temple worship complex. And you got to wonder if Tobiah ever returned, whistling his way back to his room and opened up, went, "Uh uh-oh, I guess I don't live here anymore. Well, here is Nehemiah, the leader, coming back and cleaning house. First of all, he confronted and addressed sins regarding worship. Secondly, he confronted sins regarding allowing evil on the inside. Third, he's going to confront sin regarding the failure to support the priest and the temple complex, verses 10 to 14. I also discovered that portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. 
All Judah then brought the tithe of grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them, Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of God and its services. So, as a review, sins regarding worship, sins regarding allowing, tolerating evil inside the camp, inside the complex. Thirdly now, sins regarding failure to support the priests who were ministering in the temple complex. Now, a plausible reason why Eliashib had housed Tobiah in the storehouse was because they were depleted. Israel disobeyed. They did not continue bringing the contributions of grain and wine and oil. If that was the case, we've got this empty room. So Nehemiah, on his return, finds out the contributions haven't come. The Levites then have returned to an agrarian or farming lifestyle because they don't have a way to make a living and they don't have the materials and the goods and what is needed to continue the sacrificial system within the temple complex. Nehemiah's anger toward the officials who have consequently forsaken the house of God comes to bear here. They are responsible. The people obeyed God in their tithe and offerings, but the leaders were not. Remember Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 39, for the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. They are there as utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. So this is a very short span of time and they've already forsaken what they had agreed to do. Well, Judah responds once they are reprimanded and they return, they bring the tithes and offerings. Nehemiah then is going to appoint reliable men to oversee the storehouses. And I find it fascinating. It just takes somebody with the courage to confront the sin. Somebody with the courage to call it what it is. And it's amazing. People knew they were wrong. There wasn't any crying about, this hurts my feeling, or you're not being kind, or you're not being tolerant. They responded. And verse 14 is the first of four prayer slash laments that Nehemiah is going to ask God to remember him in the sense, don't let my efforts, don't let my hard work of reform be forgotten and undone because people are disobeying. Number one, sins regarding worship. Number two, sin regarding letting evil on the inside. Number three, sin by not supporting the temple complex. And four, sin regarding Sabbath. Listen to verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on Sabbath. So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. There were also men of Tyre living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise, and they sold them to the sons of Judah on Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. 
Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the door should be shut and that they should not open until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside the gates of Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do this again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Another commitment in chapter 10 was that they were to keep the Sabbath. Sadly, Nehemiah finds the Jews violating it in every way, shape, and form. The word profaning found twice in this passage means to make something that is sacred common. We think of profane language of cursing, but what it meant in the Old Testament was you take something that's special and sacred and set apart and you make it common. They were working. They were treading grapes for wine. They were doing labors that were all prohibited on Sabbath. They're trading with merchants of Tyre. But you got to love Nehemiah's dealings. He rebukes them and he calls their activity evil. And it profanes, in other words, makes Sabbath common. And Sabbath was supposed to be special. Now, just as a reminder, Shabbat, Sabbath, began Friday when the sun went down. And then on what we would call early Sunday morning, Sabbath was broken. So it's about a 24-hour and change period between when the sun goes down on Friday and when the sun comes up on Sunday. So for the Jew, Sunday is their first work day of the week, what we would call Monday. Nehemiah calls them out, he reprimands them, and then he shuts the gates on Friday afternoon. So you can see these traders, merchants coming in, planning to sell their wares and make a few shekels, and the doors are shut. And he's going to post notice at first his own servants because he trusts them. He threatens military action if they show up again. We read the second of his four short prayers asking for God's help and mercy. And I love the fact here that he injects the word according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Our word chesed that God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promise, his people and his promise. Well, to review again, sin regarding worship. Secondly, sin regarding evil on the inside. Third, sins regarding their failure to tithe to support the Levitical system. Fourth, sin regarding the violation of Sabbath. And finally, fifth, sins regarding marriage. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them 
and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Well, the sins regarding marriage are hard for us to translate today, but let's think about it in the context and how we understand it now. Back again in chapter 10, the Israelites promised they would not intermarry with other nations around them. This is not an anti-racial thing or some type of supremacy thing or a Zionistic thing. The rationale was when you married Philistines, Ammonites, Moabites, you broke the Mosaic law. The intent was you would bring their pagan idolatry into your life, into your relationship. It was clear in Solomon's time, and that's his reference to King Solomon, every time Israel is led into idolatry, it's because of the foreign influences around them. Nehemiah noticed that some of these kids running around, it wasn't even that they'd lost the law and the history of the heritage. They didn't speak the language. And the Hebrews had then had recognized foreign speech and brought it into their cultic system. And many times in Scripture, Exodus 21.8, Deuteronomy 3.9, and others, this foreign speech, if you will, this foreign language is going to dilute and diminish what it meant to be a Jew, to be part of the covenant of Yahweh. Nehemiah rebukes them. He calls on God to judge them. He even physically assaults some of them. And again, wouldn't it be interesting to be a fly on a wall? What precipitated him pulling their beards and pulling out their hair? More interestingly is that the beard, to lose part of it or have it cut, was a disgrace. You may remember the prophets who were shaved and sent back embarrassed. A half-shaven beard marked the lowest part of a prisoner in Rome. It might seem violent, but Nehemiah is concerned that God's judgment not come again on Israel. It'd be a small thing to lose some hair versus losing the temple complex. Derek Kidner writes, If on his first visit he'd been a whirlwind, on his second he was all fire and earthquake to a city that had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. Think of that. A comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. God does not, he will not tolerate sin forever. 
and Nehemiah's actions are obviously parallel and remind us to Christ's eviction and overturning the money changers' tables. Well, Nehemiah makes them swear before God to stop. He reminds them in verse 26 about Solomon's sin and how it dismantled him eventually. Verse 27, he calls it a great evil acting unfaithfully against our God. If that were bad enough, the priests themselves were seduced into sin. Eliashib's grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. Remember Sanballat? Remember Tobiah? These were enemies of Nehemiah, enemies of Israel. And now a high priest's son, a grandson, is marrying one of them. In verse 29, it's Nehemiah's third of the four prayers. God judge these people, judge the high priest's grandson, and prevent them from such evil. In the fourth and final time, Nehemiah asked God to remember him for good and that God would bless him. The big lesson of this chapter is simple. Maybe hard, but it's simple. Sometimes you've got to confront sin. And you've got to have courage to confront sin. On the one hand, we see a pretty quick turnabout on some of these issues. People respond quickly. Other times, there'll be resistance. Significantly, we see again, it's the Word of God that had impact on the people's lives. If we went back to chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. It was the word that was the standard. We're told in the New Testament to pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. It is the hearing of the word that transforms hearts. It's the hearing of the law that calls us back to obey. It's really as simple as this. When you hear God's word, you can obey or disobey. When you hear God's word, you can accept or reject when you hear God's word, you can embrace it or you can evade it. And my concern with every culture, with every decade, is the dilution of things. Well, you know, it's, it's your identity. You're really not a man or a woman. It's your identity the way you define it. Michael, you sound so intolerant and hateful. No, I'm calling what God has called he made man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. A man and a woman have the identity of God. And to mess with that, to meddle with that, is wrong. Marital commitment is far more important than cultural acceptability of divorce. Moral fidelity is far more important than adultery telling the truth, being a honest speaking person rather than being deceitful or spinning a story or gossiping or elaborating. Good character is more important, obviously, than somehow compartmentalizing our sin. Being a man or a woman of the word versus someone who says something and doesn't follow through. Long lost in our last couple of decades, the notion of abstinence as a single person, abstinence from every and all form of sexual interaction with another person that is not your husband, your wife, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship. Sensual virginity 
rather than de redefining sexual involvement. It's amazing the attitudes of what people will say is and is not sexual intimacy. To admit that we're sinners and to ask for forgiveness. As a reminder, every one of us sin. We sin all the time. We sin every day. But are we broken? Are we repentant? Are we confessing? Are we seeking forgiveness? Are we asking for the Holy Spirit to control us? We need self-control. Self-control isn't just mustering up willpower. If it was, we'd all be uh, in great shape and great health. Uh, we're not. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit's help to have self-control. Is contentment more important than bigger, better, newer, more? Can you find a place where you say enough? What about your financial integrity and generosity and giving to people and helping others? More than likely, the reason the Levitical system failed and they abandoned the temple was because people weren't bringing their offerings, their tithes and offerings and first fruits and new wine, all that they needed to sustain the temple complex. Marriage to a committed believer rather than a person that doesn't know Christ. Uh, diligent engagement in trying to help our children come to know Christ rather than an abdication to daycare centers and public school systems, all which have a place and can be fine and good. But you as a father or a mother, your primary job is to teach those kids. These and a thousand more things like them. Boy, they can be hard. They can be difficult. They can be misunderstood. They can be inconvenient. You can think I'm intolerant. I'm unkind. I'm hateful. Nehemiah pulled hair. Nehemiah called it what it was. Now, I'm not saying we run around playing police and judging other people's lives. I am saying we judge sin. I am saying there's a time when a leader must step up to the plate and call it what it is. We can make excuses. We can pretend it doesn't matter. We can look the other way. Or can we embrace it? Can we hold it? Can we trust? Can we submit? Why? It's God's word. He gave it. He didn't falter. He spoke. He didn't waver. He gave his son to die to fulfill it. And when we embrace it, when we trust him, we submit to him, we're not merely embracing the words he spoke. We're embracing the God of the word. You and I aren't just submitting to words on a piece of paper. We're submitting to the God of the universe. We're saying, you're God and I'm not. I don't understand this. I might not even like this, but you're God, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to obey you. I don't do it because I understand everything. I do it because I choose to trust him. Why do this? Let me give you three reasons. Real simple. Number one, we obey because he said to. That should be enough. Secondly, we obey because it's it's not just good for us. It's great for us. It may not seem like it at the moment because sin can be pleasurable for the moment. But this is good and great for the long run to be right and holy and trustworthy and right in his eyes. And third, we obey because that's faithfulness. To be faithful is to say I'm going to trust him even when I cannot see perfectly the end, when I can't see all the in-betweens. At the end of Christ's ministry with the disciples, he told them, If you love me, what? 
you will obey me. Interesting the way the book ends. Nehemiah petitioning, asking God with these prayers, will you remember me? That I tried to do good. I did good. I did this according to your greatness, for your loving kindness. It begins with the report of a man hearing of the broken down wall of Jerusalem, who musters prayer and courage, who goes to Artaxerxes for permission, and God grants him great favor. Fifty-two days later, a completely restored, rebuilt wall. Not long after that, Ezra the priest rereading the law, people being mournful, repentant, coming to terms with what they had done as sinful, choosing then to have a joyful countenance toward God, worshiping God, entering the Feast of Booze, celebrating in no short time, making all these great commitments. They're going to do the right thing the right way. In a very short span of time, Nehemiah returns, and the wall, although physically around the city, the walls crumbled morally inside the hearts of the Jew. If you love him, you'll obey him. You can't do it by sheer willpower. You can't do it by sheer discipline. You need God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. You submit to him, and he will help us. Well, we are rapidly coming to the end of this series on the leadership process. We have one more summary episode after this week's, but for our last two themes that we want to highlight as part of the leadership process coming from Nehemiah chapter 13 are the ideas of rest and enduring loneliness. And dad, I've heard you talk about this a lot, that it is lonely at the top, that leadership is lonely. I'm somewhat of an amateur hobbyist on the story of Shackleton. There's a line in his journal after an extraordinarily difficult challenge he had from a man that was essentially threatening mutiny. And at the end of this long argument, uh, he writes the line, loneliness is the penalty of leadership. And when we read chapter 13, although it doesn't come off the page, I do think it's a safe conclusion how he prays, Also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. So we get the sense he's done something very difficult, and no doubt he went back, quote, home alone. And there's an exquisite place when, as Barbara referred to in prior broadcasts, when she talked about me, God, and pain, Mm -hmm. there's an exquisite place for a leader when you've done the right thing in the right way and you go home you may be desperately lonely, and that's where you draw near to God. You draw near to people whom you can trust, but there's something exquisite about just being alone and just knowing that even though, as Barbara said, I may be in a room by myself, but I'm not alone. Christ is with me, and something happens there I can't quite articulate or identify, not to sound too mystical, but it's did I do the right thing? Did I do it in the right way? And can I put my head on the pillow in good conscience? Knowing, was it perfect? No. But I did the best I could, the right way, the right time, and now I'm going to trust God with the outcomes. Well, you talked with Stephen Mansfield about this very topic, and Stephen has been on the show earlier in the series, but just quickly remind us, for those of us who may have forgotten, who is Stephen Mansfield? 
Well, Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times best-selling author, and he's a popular speaker. He does media training in the Washington, D.C. area. He lives half his time in Middle Tennessee and half his time in D.C. He's become a good friend, and he's got some thoughts on this area of loneliness and leadership. One of the things you see in the book of Nehemiah is in some of his uh, records, especially chapter 8, where he chronicles, it's almost a letter to God. These are all the things I did for these people, Lord. Remember me for good, <laughs> you know, because they don't understand um, the tenacity and the planning and the fortitude he had to have to get that wall built. Leaders today, uh, I, I call it an exquisite loneliness, that when you make decisions that affect other people's lives, it can affect their budgets, their salaries. It can affect how they, you know, I mean, people get so much identity out of their employment, their job, their title. And a leader is the one who can change that. And you make hard decisions. You have to make expensive decisions. You have to cut back. You have to increase. You have to reallocate. And you can make bad decisions. And then you live with the consequences. So they're lonely. I think one of the measures of a leader is how they handle the loneliness that their leadership role forces upon them. But Churchill spoke about the psychological energy and the and the strength of soul that you gather, that you acquire uh, by living in isolation. He spoke in, in almost theological language. He said that the prophet has to go into the wilderness or they don't come back to society with anything powerful to say that it's in the dark night of the soul, that it's in the lonely moments that you're shaped. And it's not just your decisions, it's the life of leadership as a whole. Ultimately, you know, leadership is not a, a team effort. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, I believe in leadership teams and what have you, and I certainly do. But the individual role of a leader is by, by nature isolating. My wife loves me and I love her like a crazy man, but she can't lift the load of leadership that I have to carry in certain situations. That's something I carry alone. She can understand it, she can pray for it, she can come from me in it, but she can't take it off me and put it on her shoulders. And so, yeah, there is an isolating factor to leadership. You, you stand alone. You're an eagle that has to sort of fly alone. That shouldn't make you vain. It shouldn't make you a loner. It shouldn't make you antisocial. But also we're doing the young a disservice when we train them for leadership and don't talk about it. That leadership is inherently isolating. Um, I have a lot of people who will say to me, wow, I'd like to have your life. And I often think, you know, I spend lots of time alone. I spend lots of time on 12, 13-hour flights. I spend lots of time reading, lots of time praying, lots of time alone. I wonder if you're aware of the price, I'm thinking. Not so much that I've suffered, you know, I've been beaten and put in prison for my views. I haven't. But more that, especially for the young and the millennials who are so social, I think they think of leadership as done in teams. And there's a truth to that. But the thing they may not be prepared for is the way a serious role of leadership requires you to walk alone. There seems to be, and maybe this is an overgeneralization, but and people when they're alone and how they use that time is it focused on me and I, I call it horizontal christianity you know i want a better life i want to be you know this that and the other versus a vertical christianity of you know, we're submitting to the king the leader our savior our lord it's about him his name his glory his honor it took me to be probably 40 or 50 before i started understanding that that this is not about me and when you're alone and lonely and feel like you made a bad decision or a poor decision or you got hammered for a decision or whatever the case may be, and you're dealing with that isolation, you go narcissist more than you go, okay, altruistically, Lord, how do I serve you? How do I learn from this? How do I grow and change? 
one of the things I find that leaders have to really battle against is bitterness because you are going to get hammered by people who don't like your decisions. You are going to get uh, the, the pastor who paints the parking lot a certain way is going to get criticized, going to get criticized for what he wears and, you know, how he preaches. And, and so fighting back against bitterness, you know, you will be betrayed uh, to use the old joke. You know, you think you're pastoring, you think you're shepherding sheep, and then you find out that sheep bite, you know. Um, and so whatever leadership role you're in, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sitting right now in Washington, D.C., where I do a lot of work, and it's a, you know, right now, especially in the Trump era, it's a very, very heated place, and people are being hurt and cast aside. And, and I still say that the hardest thing to do is to uh, keep your heart clean and refuse bitterness. You know, I'm always, I'm always reminded of the image that when Abraham made the sacrifice before God for the destiny of his son and, and for an heir, he stayed up all night protecting that sacrifice from the birds of prey. Well, you hold your life before God. You want him to use you wherever you're called to be, politics, business, ministry, whatever. And birds of prey will always be coming down. All birds of prey will always be trying to destroy the sacrifice, to consume it, to make you bitter, to make you angry, to make you dark. And 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 yet if you give your soul to that, you're, you're not going to be effective. You're not going to lead people and, and inspire people. So you have to protect your heart. You have to protect uh, your, the sacrifice you're holding before him. And I think those times alone, it, you can go one of two ways. You can sit around and nurture your bitterness and rehearse the wrongs done to you. Or you can forgive and get clean and, as you say, begin to get your eyes off yourself and your own experience and begin to get your eyes more on God's will and his work in the lives of people. Right now in D.C., for example, we're seeing a lot of bitter, angry, hurt people uh, hurt others. And it's, it's nonproductive that we aren't moving forward right now as a nation. And, and in ministry and other places, it's exactly the same thing. So I think the key is everybody's going to be forced into isolation. The question is, what do you do when you get there? Nurture your wounds, deepen your bitterness, or get free so that you can be of use in the next season? Hard to sum up the entire book of Nehemiah. Obviously, we've talked about the leadership process, but one piece I want to end on is rest. The importance of Sabbath in the Old Testament was a command of God. It was something he took very seriously, that we were to take a day off. It wasn't simply to play golf or watch sports or even work in the yard so much as it was a rest from our normal labors to focus on him. That doesn't mean we have to pray and fast and think about God 24 hours for one day, but taking a break from the rhythm of work is a statement of faith and it refreshes you to be better at who you are those other six days. I think too many of us in leadership are workaholics. Too many people get up early, stay up late, they take calls, they do emails, they stay on social media all the time. Here's the question. Can you trust God six days of the week that you can take one off (laughs) and you can rest and reflect, enjoy good fellowship, enjoy your family, even enjoy some recreation? But to be able to recuperate emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically and trust him, the work's going to be there on the following day. Too many leaders live a life that they can never stop. The old axiom that you own your own company and get to work your own hours, 18 to 20 a day, that's a formula for failure. Trust God, take time off, rest, recuperate, the right people, the right places, the right redirection, and you'll be a better person for it, and those around you will benefit as well. Well, you and Stephen also shared some thoughts on this idea of rest and how important it is for leaders. So let's go ahead and join that conversation now. 
aside from just telling them that rest is essential and that they will actually be sharper if they rest, and aside from telling them that rest is an act of worship and that they need God's grace and, and uh, power in their lives, the, 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 most, the best advice I give people is actually from Winston Churchill. Uh, he said, a change is as good as a rest. So what the average leader thinks about when he thinks about rest, you know, is laying on, in his bed all day Sunday or something, you know, that kind of almost liturgical kind of rest. Um, but the reality is Churchill recharged by simply doing something completely different. And that's why he swam, and that's why he flew planes, and that's why he painted. But throughout most of his life, he, he painted paintings and found that so different from his work as prime minister that it, was, it recharged him. So the advice that I give leaders that has helped them the most is not go from going 100 miles an hour to suddenly jamming on the brakes and sitting still for 12 hours um, or trying to sleep all day or something like that that's going to be impossible. Rather, change. Make a change. Do something different for a day. You've been in an office you know, arguing with politicians. Uh, go for a walk. Go out and cook something. Go get on your boat. Uh, go do something completely different. And many of them find that that's the change and the rest that they need. I can't agree more with what Stephen has shared, the importance of breaking those rhythms of work and taking some time off. I followed up asking Stephen about some scriptural examples of what that rest might look like. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I think that's most important, of course, is that in the Old Testament, rest was, was commanded. Uh, and so you can assume that all of the great heroes of faith were, were taken one-seventh of the week off. Uh, and, we, and we get that sense. There were, and then, of course, when you add the feasts in the Old Testament, you know, you're adding literally months more of rest to the, the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat. We certainly see Jesus resting. Uh, we certainly recognize David rested. We realize that people ceased from their labors. But I, I think what has always meant the most to me, that since you're talking about, in the Old Covenant anyway, but observant Jews, the amount of rest built in by divine design and through the power of liturgy was huge. I mean, I mean, almost a quarter of the year uh, in, in the course of the Jewish year was rest. And I think that tells us a lot. It not only says to God, I know you're in charge and you provide me and I don't provide for myself, but now, of course, we're learning a great deal about the biology of rest, and almost all of it's just confirming what was commanded to begin with. The problem is we moved into the New Covenant. I don't mean to make, say that that's a, <laughs> a problem. Obviously, I'm a Christian. Uh, but we move into the New Covenant, and rest becomes a principle more than a commandment, and it's easier for us to ignore. And that's what a lot of people are doing to their detriment. I'm, I'm intrigued by the language in Romans. It says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. And the Greek word is suskematozoi. It means, uh, it literally uses the word schematic. Don't let your schematic be the same as that of the world. So when we find a hard time resting, we've been shaped by the world and its pace and its fears and its uh, principles of if I don't work, I won't eat, I make my money in my own strength kind of thing, um, rather than a more divine kind of pacing, which frankly is more benevolent. It's more generous. Uh, it's, it's kinder. It's more gracious. Um, and if we would learn to, to rest and rest as an act of worship, I think we'd find a great deal more happening. You know, little, the, old, the old hymn, the old Pentecostal hymn used to say, little is much when God is in it. And I, and I think we, we would find that principle happening in, in the same way that the Old Testament prophet did when he was told to tell the people, hey, you go to your barns, and no matter how much grain you have, you don't have enough. But the reason is you haven't reflected my priorities. Well, rest is a priority in the heart of God, and I think it's essential, especially for leaders. And, and by the way, uh, you know, 
know, rest is not necessarily turning into Jabba the Hutt on the couch. It's not necessarily binge watching all day. It, it is genuinely resting. It is ceasing from labors. It's turning the mind to more noble things. It's, it's reading the great book that transports you while you cease from your labors and things of that nature. And of course, it's worship. So we, we can certainly take it too far, but very few people are doing that today. Circling back to what I said earlier, do you trust God enough to take one day off and rest? Now, what does that rest look like? It can take lots of forms. I would suggest something that's out of your normal pattern. Read about a subject you don't normally study. Read a devotional book. Pick up a good Christian fiction book, if that's what winds your watch. Spend a little time with the ACTS prayer formula. Take a walk. Go for a run. Visit some really good friends and have a deep, meaningful conversation about life, about what's going on. Be an encourager, but take a break from the rhythms and routines that are our normal job. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom with little children, whether you're empty nesters, do something that's a little different from the norm pattern and reflect on God's goodness in your life. A good way to end a day of rest, looking back on the week, what was good, what was the challenge, what would you do differently, and then planning ahead for the next day. What am I looking forward to? What are my challenges that lie ahead? And how will I serve others and serve my king? This is Michael Easley in Context. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.